copy of God's Word with me to First uh, Peter, First Peter chapter one. I'd like to read the entirety of First Peter, but we'll just stick to chapter one. First Peter chapter one. God's Word says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. To the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in sanctification of the Spirit for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace be multiplied. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, according to his abundant mercy, has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled, and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, though now, for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials." that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom, having not seen, you love. Though now you do not see him, yet believing you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Of this salvation the prophets have inquired and searched carefully, who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ who was in them was indicated, indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. To them it was revealed that not to themselves, but to us they were ministering the things which now have been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven things which angels desire to look into. Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts as in your ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Because it is written, be holy for I am holy. And if you call on the Father, who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear, knowing that you were redeemed with you were you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as a lamb without blemish and without spot. He indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world but was manifest in these last times for you, who, through him, believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit in sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently with a pure heart, having been born again not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible, through the word of God which lives and abides forever. Because all flesh is as grass and all the glory of man as the flower of the grass. The grass withers and its flower falls, falls away. 
but the word of the Lord endures forever. Now this is the word which by the gospel was preached to you. Um, if you are wondering why I'm here or why you hear this voice as opposed to the one you're familiar with on the podcast, it's because uh, Pastor Westlink is in Rio Rancho filling in for Pastor Booz, who is called, who has been called out of town uh, due to the passing away of his mother. So he's back east and uh, could not find someone on short notice to fill the pulpit. So Pastor uh, was asked to do that, and, and he agreed. Everyone's over there. Okay. So we'll turn to our text for this morning, which you've already read during the Scripture reading. 1 Peter chapter 1. Um. I had uh, recently been uh, looking for um, something new, uh, at least new for me in, in God's Word. Of course, God's Word isn't new, but the nice thing about uh, God's Word is that as we grow and the seasons of our life change, uh, God's Word is a continual source of direction and correction and inspiration. And so, although... It's always been there and has been there for millennia and in, in written form and has been established in the heavens since before time. Um, it is continually uh, renewing itself uh, to us in order to, uh, as I said, can encourage us and instruct us and, and correct us along the way. So I was doing that recently and I stumbled across this little book of First Peter and... and uh, and Second Peter as well, but the, the two Peters. Um, and at, at the same time, I don't get a chance to listen very often to the radio and, and various teachers on the radio. But one of the days I took the car to work, I, I had the radio on, and, um, and Charles Swindoll was, was um, speaking from, uh, had done a series through First and Second Peter as well. And, and that really uh, encouraged me because it seemed like, you know, it was... It was uh, um, he was uh, saying some things that stood out to me as well, and, and so that was a really a source of encouragement. But the reason why it came to my mind was um, because of things that were going on at work and things we were seeing in the media and, and uh, the political rhetoric that was going on. I, w I, I was sort of struggling with, you know, how should we as Christians um, be living? What, what is the proper way to describe or explain what is the right language we should use or the analogy when we think of the scriptures who should we appeal to as our example um, in in a way um, that uh, uh, that can help us to see how we are to live in our present historical context and we hear a lot in Christian circles about America America being you know God's nation. We are so wealthy and so blessed because we are somehow God's favorite or uniquely um, div uh, or divinely ordained by God. And this sort of language, not only is it present in, in our modern um, view of the, of the church in America and, and its relationship to the political uh, ordering of things, but um, it's there in the secular 
politicians uh, from Lincoln and Ronald Reagan. We are a city set on a hill that somehow we are um, a beacon of, of, of hope and, and light to the world just as a, um, just by, by virtue of the values and the institutions that we have erected, the way we've structured ourselves and the values that we've, we've, we've established our nation upon. And it doesn't ever really... I, I've mentioned before on a, on Saturday, on a Sunday night that, that um, I'm a child of the 80s. So Reagan's political rhetoric of the 80s really sunk into me. And uh, I sort of swallowed that being um, a child and sort of growing up in that, in that context. And uh, recently, though, I've started questioning some of those assumptions. Is that really how we should view America? Uh, is that really how we should view our role, our relationship as the church in um, a, a political environment um, instituted and established by men? And that's in, in sort of in that context. And then also my own role, working where I work, doing the work that I do. Um, what, how should I view myself um, and, and what are my responsibilities and obligations um, uh, and those sorts of things. And it's in that context that, that I came across this book of First Peter, which I have read numerous times, but from a slightly different perspective, um, as I just explained. So it's with that point of view that I would like to turn uh, to First Peter and, and see what God's Word has to say to another group of Christians living in different historical times, but speaking to them with the inter eternal, inspired, effective, uh, Holy Spirit-inspired um, um, word for their situation and then their circumstance and try to apply that uh, to some of the questions um, that, that I was and have been wrestling with and hopefully can share effectively to you uh, that might be a source of encouragement for you as well. But before we do that, let's, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, Lord, we do thank You for Your love and faithfulness once again. We thank You for this time, for Your Word before us, for Your Spirit within us and Your presence among us. Lord, we do ask that You would guide and direct in this time that Your Word might go forth, um, that it might be indeed Your Word, and that it might be uh, effective, for the purposes which you intend it, and that uh, we might be conformed more and more to the image of your Son and equipped for the work of the ministry of bringing others to reconciliation with you, even as we ourselves have received that reconciliation. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. So Peter here is writing to fellow believers. Believers who he describes, the language that he uses to single them out, uh, is twofold. The first one that we find here in verse 1 is, You're pilgrims. You're, you are sojourners. You are Residents, yes, but of a very temporary sort. You are strangers. 
you're in a place that you don't fit in, that you don't belong. You're weird. You're different than everyone else, even though you are, for the time being, residing in and amongst and beside those other ones. And exactly what is it that makes you strange? What causes you to be this kind of a person or group, pilgrims, sojourners, aliens, strangers in a strange land, is found in verse 2. To the pilgrims of the dispersion of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in sanctification of the Spirit for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. So the first thing that we find in Peter's mind as he writes, and indeed he addresses this letter to a group, is he identifies that group. And the identification of the group he writes to is found is rooted and grounded in God's identification of this group. The elect, or the chosen, or the ones who um, have been marked out. So, the strangeness of these pilgrims, from verse 1, is due to the work and purposes of God on their behalf. That is what makes them strange. That's the synonymous terms here, pilgrim and elect ones. The fact that God knows you and has chosen you is what makes you different, makes you weird, makes you strange. In particular, it's the purposes for which He has chosen you. Elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in sanctification of the Spirit for obedience, and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. This manifestation of God's work on our behalf is what makes us different, is what distinguishes believers, pilgrims, God's chosen elect from the other residents of the land. God's people are obedient. They are the ones who have been chosen uh, to be partakers and members of His covenant, that special relationship, His new covenant. That's what the phrase sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ sort of brings to mind. The idea of the, when Moses ratified the covenant, when he stood up and read the, the law to the people and said, basically, do you... Ex Moses in that passage sort of is like the, the minister on a wedding. Do you, nation of Israel, take this God to be your God? And do you, God, you know, take this nation, Israel? And part of the sign of the covenant that was struck, the, 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 the contract that was ratified at that time was the dipping of hyssop in the blood and, and sprinkling it. Saying that, you know, just like we might sign on the dotted line, that was the evidence that a, an agreement had been struck, a covenant had been arranged, a vow had been made. 
And this is the same here for the weird ones, the strangers. They have a particular relationship with God, having been sprinkled by the blood of Jesus Christ, having accepted, having made the vows of covenantal relationship through faith in Jesus Christ. And the evidence of that fact, which makes it obvious that they're different from the rest, is obedience. This is, in fact, the purpose of God's delineating the bounds of this people in time past, beforehand. And the root and ground of this action of God, we have here in this verse, the who, God, the what, chose or elect, a twofold how, an implied when, and a why. So we have God, chose or elected, how, in the first sense, how, what was the criteria by which he made his choice? It was a criteria of his foreknowledge, his knowing beforehand. Us, personally. And the other means by which he made his choice is through the agency So we have the how of what was the criteria he used and how, what were the technical means by which he made it effective, this choice. And that's the working of the Holy Spirit in sanctification of the Spirit, by the Spirit's setting you apart. And the implied win is when does God's Spirit seal you? and set you apart, indeed regenerate you. The implied win of this effect, of your uh, participation in God's work here of choosing and electing is, I would say, at the time you received Christ and the Spirit's work became effectual on your behalf. So we have the who, the what, the twofold how. But what we want to focus on here today is the why. Why did God do this? What was His purpose? His purpose was to establish, we've already said, a relationship between you and Him. And that relationship here is called out to be of a certain kind of relationship. God would be your God and He would do wonderful things for you, which we will talk about in our text. Most specifically, the word that Peter is going to use over and over again is salvation. He will save you. He will deliver you. He will redeem you. He will rescue you. You will be safe and secure. not because of the Patriot Act or because of the vigilance of our intelligence community or the proactiveness of our special operations forces, but because of God's work and for His purposes. So that's God's promise for you and 
What do you need to do? What is, what, what is the word which we will cringe at, the one that I'm going to use? Subservience. Obedience. That's the proper response. The faith kind of response to this offer on God's uh, part. So when we look at this and we think of, well, how should we view ourselves in our present historical context? I don't think it's any different. We should view ourselves as pilgrims, strangers, sojourners. Even though our political rhetoric in our country might be of a particular sort that wants to glorify and exalt in our institutions, and perhaps they are or have been at times better uh, than others in recent history, especially when you look at the history of the 20th century. But in God's economy of empires and nations and human organized means of governance, the best that our nation could be or any other nation at this time in history is feet of iron mixed with clay. Far beneath and below the head of gold, let alone the breast and the arms of silver, the midsection of bronze, the legs and thighs of iron, the best that we or any nation, we as a nation or any nation could be, is that precarious and fragile, unnatural mixture of clay and iron, part brittle and part strong. Which empire or nation, by the way, is going to be the one which the stone carved without hands is going to crush, toppling and ending and removing the time of the nations. So that's the best that we could be. Why would we want to identify with that picture? Why wouldn't we rather identify with those who Peter refers to as sojourners, temporary residents, pilgrims, strangers in a strange land? The analogy for our nation or any nation at this time in history isn't to the Davidic kingdom or any special blessing or or Solomonic kingdom or privileged or blessed place. The better analogy for us as believers is more like the Jews who were in Babylon. We should view ourselves more as exiles from our country, temporary residents longing for repatriation. Regardless of what our citizenship in the eyes of men is, in the eyes of God, we are like these first century Jews who is actually who are actually who Peter is writing here to. They are the church in Jerusalem who because of persecution was scattered abroad. So he's writing as the apostle 
uh, and one of the pillars of the church in Jerusalem, two fellow Jews who he knows and loves and has served amongst and with. And they're enduring persecution and they're scattered abroad. But I would say it's not that fact that delineated them as pilgrims because Peter doesn't call that. It's not that event. They were already pilgrims. It's just that event, event, the suffering, the persecution on behalf of the Romans or, or, or others that scattered these Jews abroad into these regions. That just made it obvious what they were. They didn't belong here. They weren't part of this system. And it should be same, the same for us. Right. So we are pilgrims. We are strangers. And what makes us such is our relationship with God and how that is manifest through our obedience to Him. And it's those individuals that Peter writing to here wants to hasten the arrival of grace and peace. He wants to hasten it and compound it, multiply it. You folks, sojourners, pilgrims, strangers, elect grace and peace be multiplied to you, even in the midst of hardship, even in the midst of difficulty, even in the midst of danger. Let you, may you have the grace, the favor of God, but also the efficacy that comes through the power and working of the Spirit in and amongst and through you. May you be able to do it. And may you have that contentedness in your relationship with God and your work on His behalf. Shalom. Peace. Grace being the Greek. Uh, the Greek type of greeting and peace being the Jewish type of greeting. So this is who, who Peter is writing to. And I think in this way, we should view ourselves in similar fashion. So Peter is not just writing to a specific group in a specific, specific historical context, but of course we understand this to be God-inspired Scripture. And so he's writing to us. And though we might not at first see ourselves as this kind of an individual, a stranger, a sojourner, a temporary residence, and we long to take our nation back for Christ, I think we would do well to figure out in what ways we are more like these. Because it's these that Scripture is written to. Grace to you, pilgrims, elect, strangers in a strange land, chosen by God in sanctification of the Spirit for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. And he goes on. That's just the greeting. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled, and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, 
who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice. So I said earlier that what I wanted to focus on is the why. We talked about the who and the what, the twofold how, the implied when, and the why. The why here is this obedience. God had a purpose in doing what He did. Ultimately, 1 Peter and 2 Peter both are a call to action. And really, it's all of the New Testament. But it really stood out to me recent, most recently in studying 1 Peter. It's a call to action, which I think, ironically, is born out of and brought forth in the midst of passivity. Passivity in what sense? Well, to be passive, which is from the Latin, patior, that is to suffer. We get our English word patient from this Latin root. Patient is one who is operated upon. The doctor is the one who operates. So the doctor operates on the patient and the patient is operated on. The passivity in which this call to action occurs is in the literal sense of that Latin word, the suffering. The Greek is pathos. In the midst of your suffering, in the midst of being affected by the world and its system, by your own sinful desires, the trials, the temptations, the sufferings of this world. Get ready to work. Get ready to do. So when we are, just like in the grammar, when the voice is passive, we're talking about the relationship between the activity expressed by the verb and the subject. And that relationship is either, like the example I use, the relationship between the doctor and the patient. It's either active, so you are more like the doctor who is operating, or it's passive. You're more like the patient being acted upon. So when we suffer, we are indeed the subject of some kind of activity, but we are not the ones who are producing the action. We are instead receiving the action. We are not the agents of the action. We are the recipients. And it's in this context of our sufferings which this first century group of Jews being persecuted and driven out of their homeland is exemplifying for us. And it's these ones that Peter is writing to, to encourage them, to establish them, to single them out and say, keep on, to call them to action. And in doing so, reminding them of the purpose for which God has worked on their behalf. That they might be active for Him, subservient to Him, obedient. So, in what ways are we, in this sense, passive? Well, we can see here, 
in Galatians 2. God elected us. That was a work of God. We are the recipients of that work. In verses 3, God's salvation. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to His abundant mercy. He has begotten us. This is not something we did, pulling ourselves up by our own bootstraps, or something we could accomplish without the prior work of God on our behalf. And the proffering, or the offering of that work to us. And this is most obviously evident, his, this working of His on our behalf, this working which was according to His abundant mercy, it was through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And He has begotten us again to a living hope. Again, there's a goal or a purpose in mind. And to an inheritance which is incorruptible and undefiled and does not fade away reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God. This is all a blessing of God, a recounting of what God has done on our behalf. This is God, the subject of the action, uh, the active one. And this is us, the recipients, the beneficiaries of His work on our behalf. But tucked away in here, is a theme, a thread, that Peter is going to draw upon. He's going to weave it around and through this other theme, which I said was going to be the focus of our time. That is the purpose of God's work for obedience and the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. And that thread which is going to be woven through here is faith. Faith and obedience become intertwined in the working and the planning and the purposing of God. And that it is that which binds us to Him. Although there is much in this context in which we are the passive recipients, both of the trials and the temptations and the sufferings and also the work and the blessing and the grace of God, there is also that which we are producing. We are the active ones, the subjects of the verb who are acting. And that which binds us to His work is found in verse 5. Faith. It's found in verse, verses 5, repeated again in verse 7. You are kept by the power of God through faith. That the genuineness of your faith verse 9 receiving the end of your faith and verse 21 who through Him believed in God who raised Him up from the dead and gave Him the glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Faith, 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 faith. And, synonymously, perhaps, or the other side of the coin, obedience. We've already seen that was the purpose of God from the beginning in choosing, in verse 2. In verse 14, as obedient children, 
And in verse 22, since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth, as expressed in your faith, faith and obedience become those threads which by God's plan and purposes He has ordained for us those cords to bind us to Him. And it's we who are the ones who produce, who act in this manner. The manner which is described as faith and obedience. It's left to us. We are not the passive expressors of faith. We are the active expressors of faith. In When we say, I believe, it's really me. I am the one who is expressing faith, trust, commitment to God. And I will demonstrate that by my obedience, the ordering of my life, my thinking, my desires, my activity in such a way that it's consistent with what God says is right and proper. In both cases, it is really us. It is left to us to do these things freely. So while we are recipients of God's grace and efforts on our behalf, and there is nothing that we have done to deserve this, and there is nothing that we can do to bring it about by our own efforts, that is, there's nothing we can do to bring it about by our own efforts apart from those God-ordained means or methods to make His working on our behalf truly effective. And it's faith that is that means or that method, if you will. So there is something that we must do if we are to have God's grace operative in our lives. We all know this. We've been taught this since we started coming to church. By grace you have been saved through faith. But the call to action here is the purpose for which God has done all of this. And that is obedience. So, our position and our future hope is spelled out for us in verses 2, and really verses 3, and through the first part of verse 6. We have already been introduced to the great benefit, the word which Peter will use, this great benefit, and that is our salvation. In verse 5, you are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation. Another purpose clause. God wants to rescue you. God wants to save you. God wants to redeem you, to preserve you, to deliver you. We've already seen 
what, why God wants to do this. It's for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. That's the nature of our salvation. And it's ready to be revealed in the last time. This is our hope. We want that kind of salvation. We want to be delivered not only from the, power, from the penalty of sin and the power of sin, but from the very presence of sin. And we long for that redemption. He's already alluded to what he's thinking about here, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That ultimate deliverance from the bonds and the effects of sin in our bodies, in our flesh. Both the corruption, the illness, the sickness, the disease, but also the influence, the, law, the desires and the lusts that come out of it. This is a salvation that God offers. This is the deliverance that God offers. And you are kept by God through faith. It is that means. It's the agency. God's power is the ground of our deliverance. Our faith is the means of our deliverance. God offers and man accepts. It's right for God to offer, being a gracious God. And it's right that man should accept His offer. And this is our future hope. We are kept by the power of God through faith in the midst of the trials, the, the sufferings, the strangeness of our current existence being for a time settled in and amongst others who are not so called and yet we are commanded to engage them to be representatives and ambassadors of the kingdom to which our true citizenship belongs. We are still different. And in the midst of all of the stress and the conflict and the trials that come out of this, we can be rest assured that we are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation which is on tap and ready for us. Ready to be revealed at the last time. Perhaps not a good figure of speech to use. But, it's there. It's waiting. It is busting at the seams to be let loose for us. To be finalized, to be ratified, to be completed, to, cons to be consummated. And because we know this, because we have this assurance, even in the midst of the difficulties and the trying circumstances of our lives, we greatly rejoice. But, or though, now, for a little while, and it is only a little while, if need be, that is, I think perhaps the right way to translate this phrase is if it's necessary or actually since because it, the, if the conditional here assumes it's true, since it is needful or perhaps better, since it is inevitable, 
it's necessary. It's just going to happen. You can't be different in the midst of people and not have your differentness become an issue. You will either be lauded as someone to look up to and admire for your courage, but of course, that won't be us or won't be any believer in Jesus Christ. A servant's not greater than his master and he certainly wasn't lauded or applauded for his difference. No, what we have to look forward is the other. You will be put down. You will be ridiculed. You will be shunned. You will be ostracized. You will be oppressed, discriminated against, abused because of your difference. Which, you recall, is God's working on your behalf and your free acceptance of that working. And I would say, good choice. So, for the time being, it's just inevitable by the nature of things that we will suffer. We will be grieved. We will be affected. You have been grieved by various trials. General word here, same word that's translated temptations. Not two different words in the Greek. Trials, temptations. We have James's testimony, uh, uh, teaching on this in James chapter 1. The same word that's counted all joy, brethren, when you fall into various trials, is the same word that's later on used to say, but let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. It's the context that really tells us what nuance of this word. Is it the enticement to sin or for the purpose of vindicating? You're you're tested to show or to prove your worth. In any case, that's the word that's used here. You have been grieved by various trials. Various, manifold is is the way it's translated in James at times. Same language. In fact, perhaps Peter is referring to James uh, in a very similar book that James wrote years earlier. You have been grieved by various trials. That the genuineness of your faith, being more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen, you love. Though now you do not see Him, yet believing, you rejoice with with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your salvation, the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. This short little passage is bookended verse 7 and verse verse 9, by faith. Faith, again, is that thread which is winding through here, which is binding us to God, to His purposes and His intention. 
And it's that faith which wants to be proved genuine. The testing of your faith is the way that uh, it's translated in, in James. Count it all, my brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. The proving of your faith. The vindication of your faith is the way it's translated oftentimes in James. It produces patience. Here, Peter uses that same kind of phraseology. The genuine, the proving of your faith being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire. And this is an argument from the lesser to the greater. Look, we test gold to verify its pureness, the level of its purity with fire. And it's a precious thing. Your faith being much more precious, why would you expect that not to be tested and tried? in serious ways. An argument from the lesser to the greater. If we do it for the lesser, why wouldn't we do it for the greater? Why wouldn't it be done for the greater? And the purpose again, that your faith may be be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. There's a hope. There's a future. There's something to look forward to. We are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed. And that faith is tested and tried so that in that day it might be to the praise, honor, and glory. That day known as the apocalypse. That's the revelation here. The apocalypse of Jesus Christ. The unveiling, the revealing, the appearing of Jesus Christ. But, even though salvation is our future hope, and even though in our theology we understand it to be our position, we are saved. Paul says, by grace you have been saved through faith. Aorist tense, punctiliar tense, point in time action, it was done. Signed, sealed, and delivered. We have that assurance of our salvation. So it's our position and our future hope, but we have this present state, which is a state of enduring the trying and the testing, various trials. But faith is the linchpin between our position and future hope in the appearing, in that day, in the apocalypse of Christ, not only is faith that which binds us to that hope and to our present position before God, it's also that which makes the future hope and our present position the historical manifestation That is, our faith takes that which is offered to us at some later date and is begun 
at a point in time so that we are positionally right before God and makes it active or evident in the world or the sphere of our influence, the world of our relationships, our activities, whether it's work, with parents, with siblings, with husbands or wives, spouses. And that's what Peter will recount in chapters 2, 3, 4, and 5. All of these kinds of ways that your faith is made manifest in the world. That faith which binds you to God and His plans and His workings and His purposes which were for your obedience. It's that faith expressed in obedience which binds us to God and makes us a part of His purposes, a part of His people, which makes this salvation effective on our behalf. So, ultimately, the main concern here is our salvation. But it's not just our salvation at some future time. It's our salvation here and now. So verse 9, the result of all of this, the inevitable fact that your faith will, that you will suffer, you will be grieved by, you will be affected by various trials. The point of all of this is that in responding, being act upon, acted upon in this manner and responding actively in the right manner, we are receiving, present tense, the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So God's concern for us is not just our salvation at some later point or some legal standing before Him. He's concerned with our present experience as well. And it's in the relationship between the ways that which the world and its system would operate upon us and we respond actively to that, that we take hold of that salvation which is offered to us, which is reserved in heaven for us to be revealed in the last time, which is to praise and honor and glory, to the praise, honor and glory of God at the revelation of Jesus Christ. We take that and make it our present experience now. We are receiving present tense the end of your faith, the end of our faith, the salvation of our souls. So salvation is for now. It's not just then. And that's what Peter wants to bring to the mind of those who are enduring such hardships, who have been scattered abroad. Look, it's your faith which originally got you into this relationship with God. It's your faith which is going to keep you in the power of God. And it's your faith in responding rightly to the trials and the temptations of life that is going to make your salvation a reality today. So, 
We have touched on the means of, for our salvation. That means being faith. That's what makes salvation real for us as opposed to imagine. Imagine. It's faith. Faith is our response to God's offer. But it's a certain kind of faith. It's a living faith. It's an active faith. It's a faith which endures. It's a faith which bears up under heavy loads. It's a faith which stands the test. And it's this kind of faith which makes salvation possible here and now, not just positionally, but experientially. In fact, it's the logical and necessary deduction from verse 9. The fact that you're receiving the end of your salvation, present tense, you are receiving it, that is, the salvation of your souls. Wherefore, skipping down to verse 13, therefore, because this is true, because it's faith which makes you right with God, because it's faith which binds you to God, it's through faith that you are kept by the power of God for salvation. And it's a response of faith in the midst of trial, the proving of your faith, the enduring of your faith, which leads to the receiving in the present, the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Therefore, do something. Therefore, act. All The majority of what we've talked about here is God's acting on our behalf. The world's acting and, and temptations and things acting upon us. And what, the one little area that we have to cling to is faith. That's the only lifeline that we have. That's the, what's in our control, is our faith. That's what we have to express. That's what we have to do. But out of that little light in the dark, the whole kingdom of God ushers forth. We have this thread. We have this lifeline. We have this shield. And it's from that that the whole of Christian life issues forth. And indeed, the rule and reign, the kingdom of God, which comes with it. Therefore, get ready. Gird up the loins of your mind. Be ready for action. Because this is who you are. This is what God has done for you. These are the promises of God. This is how you clung to it and endured and are bound to God's promises and God's workings on your behalf. Get ready for action. The first place that this action takes place, is performed, is in our minds. Gird up the loins of your minds. Be ready 
to think. Be ready to have a thought life which is characterized by these these things. Be sober. Be hopeful. And ground your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Again, faith is the evidence or the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Faith is that which stands under. The word there, substance, substance, stands under. The Greek, hypostasis. Same word, same idea. That which stands under the thing which hopes for. The substance of things hoped for. That's faith. Faith reaches forward to this future reality and makes it present. Is the means by which it becomes a present experience in our lives. But in order to do this, we have to have our minds rightly oriented. They need to be sober. They need to be clear. They need to be serious. They need to be unencumbered by drink, obviously, the word we would first associate with sobriety is the opposite of inebriation, to be under the influence of, to be out of control. And rest your hope fully on the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts as in your ignorance, but as He who called you is holy, you also, in all your conduct, be holy. Because it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. It's an obvious fact. Because of the faith which we claim, because of the relationship that that establishes between us and God, it is obvious and necessary that we be like God and not like the world the way we used to be. That which motivates us now is not those former desires, but our affections for God. We'll still have many of the same trials and circumstances of life. There will be people and relationships There'll be difficulties and hardships and conflict and stresses and strains. But that old way of acting, that old way of responding, that old way of being affected by these external and sometimes very closely internal pressures, <clears throat> desires, lusts, is totally different. Our motivation is from an entirely different wellspring as a result of our <clears throat> faith and as a result of God's working on our behalf. So, faith is both effective for that day and for now. And faith is active 
Excuse me. So what is it that we call the activity of faith? What is meant by the actualization of our hope here and now? Simple word. It's the purpose that God initiated all of this from the beginning. Obedience. When we manifest the will of God in space and time, in the sphere of our influence, in that area of our lives which is under our control, of which we can be said to be the active agents, the ones doing whatever action, the verb that follows us as the subject, we as individuals, that area, when we manifest God's will, we are making our salvation today and not putting it off till tomorrow. That is the whole purpose of God's choosing us from the beginning, back in verse 2. Elect according to the foreknowledge of God in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience and sprinkling of the blood. So what do you call active faith? What do you call the actualization of our future hope in the here and now? You call it obedience. Obedience is the effect of faith which is alive and real. And since it is alive and real, it's capable of effective action. Do you want to know that faith without works is dead? It's inactive. It's incapable of acting. It's returned to an inanimate state. A state which characterized by corruption and decay. And ultimately passing away. So as faithful, effective agents, the actions which we produce are collectively grouped together under the description obedience. That is, the subjections, the subjection of our individual wills to God. The subjection of our capacities to act and act effectively and decisively with purpose and intent. Subjection of our wills to God. A servant's not greater than his master. Christ said, the works that I do are not mine, but the works of him who sent me. The will that I accomplish is not mine, but the will of him who sent me. What makes you think that you, adopted son of God, and not the only begotten one, would be any different than our Savior and Lord? So, if this is accomplished in our lives, if our faith is of an obedient kind, that is, if it's real and alive, and therefore capable of activity, if this is accomplished, that is, if we express this kind of faith, then in the end, our salvation will have been what we always longed for it to be. It won't just be a future hope. It'll be a historical fact. We will have done, 
past perfect tense, what Jesus would have done. We will have actualized God's will in space and time, in our sphere of influence, in our moment of history. This is the salvation which God purposed for us. He chose us for obedience and right relationship to Him, covenantal relationship to Him. Is this the salvation that you long for? Or are we just looking for a get-out-of-jail-free card? How do we know? The answer to that question, our actions speak louder than our words. Indeed, we can be affected by many things. Either former lusts, as in our ignorance, trials, various trials of this world, of this life, now for a little while, as is necessary by the nature of the circumstances. We can be affected by many things. And we can be active agents who affect reality. The question for us is, will our affection be and move us to effective action in unity with the will of God? That's the challenge. That's the test. That's the variety of the proving of our faith. That's the proof of saving faith. Faith which is to the praise, honor, and glory of God. Let's pray.